Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Brought to you by Facebook. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, we work's unusual path to IPO and how the U.S. government might be using your face. But first... That's the crowd in Lyon, France, after the U.S. women won their record fourth World Cup yesterday by a score of 2-0 over the Netherlands. Now, it was an expected victory for the U.S., but one that came after a particularly daunting path and all sorts of controversy, from star Megan Rapinoe sparring with President Trump to criticisms over how the U.S. players celebrated their goals. Plus, of course, the source of those equal pay chants, which is that the U.S. women's team is suing their own governing body the U.S. Soccer Federation, for being paid less than is the men's team, even though there is strong evidence that the women not only outperform their male counterparts on the field, but also in the bank. In short, the U.S. women handled all the pressure, including the pressure they brought on themselves. The big question now is what comes next, not only in court, but when it comes to things like sponsorships and, more importantly, the viability of the NWSL, a nine-team women's pro soccer league where stars like Alex Morgan, Rapino, and Rose Lavelle spend most of their playing days. It's been around for about six years, even though its predecessor leagues date back to 2001, but mostly in small markets with small stadiums. The hope is that yesterday's victory could be a turning point, but that's a hope that U.S. soccer, for both men and women, have voiced previously when they've gotten attention on the national stage. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Sports Editor Kendall Baker. But first, this. We've all seen online ads that seem perfectly tailored to us, and now we have better ways to learn how this works. Visit facebook.com about ads. We're joined now by Axios Sports Editor Kendall Baker. Let's just first start with the game itself. You noted in your newsletter this morning you were worried that if this thing had ended up one nothing, that it would all kind of be, should there have been a penalty kick? Should there not have been a penalty kick? So when Lavelle scored to make it 2 nothing, all controversy averted, legitimate championship? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was going to be a legitimate championship no matter what. I just definitely, you know, anticipated that had we not scored the second goal, you know, you're going to have the classic detractors taking away from this monumental achievement, looking at it as like, oh, well, it shouldn't have been a penalty kick. And I just hoping we wouldn't go down that road because I know how that would have ended. And then you that obviously would have also boiled up all the equal pay arguments and only barely won the championship. So I'm just glad that they, they got the win and there's no argument against them getting that win. Let's talk about the equal pay thing because it is fascinating. You know, these players, they represent not just the U.S., but they're, you know, they play for U.S. soccer, but at the same time are suing U.S. soccer, obviously for making less money per player than the men's team does. Their argument right now, and, and you know, when you see it in court and when they talk about it, is essentially that while years ago the men's game brought in more money than did the women's game, that that has essentially equalized and arguably after what happened yesterday, the women will be generating more revenue than the men. From your perspective, valid argument? I think it's a totally valid argument. I think one of the reasons why it has festered in the way that it has, obviously with the World Cup going on, it's, it's a you know hot topic. But underneath all of that, the, the numbers are very complicated, and that's what I think is making this such a bigger issue. It's not something that you know I've seen so many conflicting reports because, for example, you, the U.S. Soccer Federation, you know, sponsorship deals, for instance, they lump those together between the men and the women, so there's no way to really tell what's attributed to who. And so, because the numbers are so you know not black and white, it's kind of allowing both sides of this debate to point to this number or point to this number and kind of legitimize their arguments. And I personally think that they have a totally legitimate argument. I just think that it is not as black and white as 
you maybe hope it would be if you're in that camp. They do lump some of these numbers like sponsorships together. But in court, though, U.S. soccer is going to have to break them out somehow and justify that, right? Because if, if their argument is, well, the men make more because they bring in more sponsorship dollars. Oh, but we lump them together so we can't break them out. That contradicts itself. Of course. No, I, I, th- I can't wait for this to go to court because I think then we'll get some clarity on these things. There's just so much vagueness in these numbers right now that, you know, it's very hard to look at it as a black and white argument. And I also think on top of that, what's complicating it is a lot of the numbers you know, it's, it's, it's very much, okay, here's what the women are making, here's what the men are making, and here's what the women brought in, here's what the men brought in. Complicating that is the fact that the, the men missed the World Cup, which drums up a lot of interest, drums up a lot of revenue, and so all of those numbers are comparing the women in a World Cup cycle to the men who missed the World Cup cycle. Now, at the same time, the fact that the men missed the World Cup kind of makes their argument. Most of the women on this team, maybe all the women on this team, also play professionally, right? In the Women's Professional Soccer League in the U.S. Alex Morgan does, Rose Lavelle does, Megan Rapino does. What are you looking for off of this to happen with that league? What kind of the metrics and the things you're waiting for and watching for? So ESPN signed a deal with the NWSL for the rest of the season, which is great. I would be looking for viewership to not just spike after this, because I think that's expected, but to sustain throughout the rest of the season. So there's one team in the NWSL, Portland team, averages like 18,000 fans per game. But then there's every other team averages 5,000 or less. And so you're seeing that one team is doing something right. You know, so there's obviously a model to make this work. Tell me I'm wrong about this. Portland has an MLS team too, right? A men's professional soccer team. And that does really well too. There's something about Portland loves soccer. There's something about Portland. I think maybe it's the fact that they only have one major sports team, that they have space for these other teams to kind of make an, an indent in a somewhat smaller city. But I definitely am curious to see, because again, I think we'll definitely see a spike in interest following the World Cup as we do with every sport following, like whether it's the Olympics, World Cup, you know, interest in it. And then the American audience kind of fades. I think there's a window here where, you know, we're entering the kind of dead period where there's really only going to be baseball. And there's an opportunity here to see sustained interest for, you know, the next month or maybe two months. And that would be great. I think that would be a really good sign. I mean, maybe ESPN re-ups. Budweiser just signed out as a beer sponsor. Like, there's definitely some energy. It's just, can you sustain it? You know, as we see many times coming off the World Cup and the Olympic events, like, it's very hard to do that. You know, it's interesting. You talk about how there were smaller audiences, in-person audiences at, at a lot of these venues. Admittedly, I am trusting Wikipedia on this. But the stadium where, for example, the, the Washington, D.C. team plays, which is actually in Maryland, it doesn't even seat 5,000 people. So even if they sell every game out, they're not even at five grand a pop. Right, right. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I think that's actually kind of smart to have these more intimate venues just because, you know, being realistic about it, if you're not going to draw X number of fans, why not make it a more intimate experience? Why not make it a little bit different fan-going experience than going to a football game with 100,000 people? I think in terms of TV viewership, the numbers are, compared to the World Cup at least, just insanely low. Sure. And so... That'll be interesting. You know, Which is true of MLS thing. games, too, right? I mean, very few people watch men's yeah. soccer. On. Let me ask you one final thing, which is about viewership. We don't, as of this moment, we don't have numbers yet. And it's an interesting thing, right? Because I, I know lots of people watched it. Obviously, got huge amounts of social media attention. There is an argument, though, that it's going to be a lower number than the final number from four years ago, just if only because of when the game began, right? Eight o'clock on the West Coast of the U.S. Any sense on how we should be judging this number? If you look at up to, so I have the numbers uh, through the semifinals. Fox was averaging 1.4 million, which is up 6% from four years ago, 50% from 2011. So through the semifinals, overall ratings are up. The finals, probably not, to your point, going to break the record because of the time zone. But I think that right there, through the semifinals, obviously you're going to expect more, you know, that kind of trend would continue through the finals. I don't know why it wouldn't. So I think overall it was 
totally a success, totally a, a net positive, and I think we can draw conclusions from that. I think overall, like viewership, competition, the fact that you have all these, you know, there were six European countries in the knockout stage, fresh off, you know, all these European clubs investing a lot of money in their women's teams. Like, you're clearly seeing, like, a trend here. You're clearly seeing a global trend, interest growing, investment growing. So, Overall, like, it's very hard to find negatives from this World Cup. I think it's a huge success. Kendall Baker, thank you so much for joining us. My final two, right after this. So about those online ads. One way it works is advertisers look for categories of people with similar characteristics, like millennials who like hiking gear. To learn more, visit facebook.com slash about slash ads. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is word that office space giant WeWork is seeking to raise up to $4 billion in debt as it continues preparing for an IPO that could come late this year or early next year. The idea seems to be that WeWork loses tons of money, nearly $2 billion in 2018, and that public market investors want to see some sort of bridge to profitability. And the debt facility could be that bridge basically soaking up the losses for years to come. And it makes some sense, but it is anything but business as usual. Companies that have a lot of debt usually go public to pay off some of that debt, whereas WeWork is adding debt in order to go public. If successful, though, it could become a new strategy for other money-burning unicorns. And finally, the Washington Post reports this morning that FBI and federal immigration authorities have, quote, turned state driver's license databases into facial recognition gold mines, scanning through millions of Americans' photos without their knowledge or consent, end quote. So it's pretty well known, or I guess you'd kind of assume, right, that these agencies do have access to RMV records. The new part here is the facial recognition part, that they are using those photos and applying facial recognition technology to them. And if it sounds very big brotherish, that's also what privacy advocates are saying this morning. So what comes next is the interesting part politically, particularly among anti-immigration Trump allies who also support, generally, stricter privacy laws and also like to bemoan how China has used facial recognition technology to better enable a surveillance state. This puts them politically in a bit of a pickle. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national chocolate with almonds day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.